I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Hey, guys. And you are listening to Spaces Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, We are all over the place. By the time you're hearing this, hopefully this is all over. But with the uh, quarantine, we're uh, all over the place. So I don't think we've addressed that yet, have we? No, not yet. So we'll uh, touch on that at some point, (laughs) but not today. So today we're discussing a specific project. It's called Recompose, and we'll touch a little bit on cemeteries in general. But I'll start with you, Jason. How are you with the conversation of death? Conversation of death? Yeah. Well, you can't, you know, it's funny. I don't have a problem with it at all. Long story short, I always thought actually I was going to be, I was going to perish a long time ago when I was young. Um, so it doesn't bother me. It's kind of one of those people. It's like, you can't have one without the other. So there's no life without death. There's no death without light. There's no light without dark, blah, 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 blah. So it really has never freaked me out, but I do know several people where it's like one of those things that's just a totally taboo subject. Yeah. Michelle, are you okay with the conversation of death? I'm totally fine with it. I think it's just a part of life. I mean, as Jason said, you know, it's just that, it's just part of what living is at the end of life. Literally, we all will perish. What about your perception of uh, cemeteries? I think they're beautiful. 
like as goofy as it sounds, I think sometimes are some of the prettiest places I've seen. And as I drive through, I live in Orange and there's actually quite a few around us, you know, within like a 10 mile radius, you know, a lot of the older streets and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I find myself every time I drive through looking at them consistently just because I think there's actually some pretty cool architecture in some of the areas. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you very, you know, very rarely in our environment these days, do you get landscape and yardage, you know, that's just open and maintained and kind of pretty. I like it. Michelle, what about you? So I'm half Asian and the Asian culture, and I think there are other cultures as well, it's very common to gather family often at cemetery sites and honor and, uh, you know, speak with those who have passed. So I kind of grew up going, you know, at least two times a year, sometimes three times four on some of like more major holidays, see my grandparents or to visit my grandparents along with my aunts and uncles and cousins. And we would bring food to the grave and we'd sit there and we'd have incense and we'd just sort of gather. And it wasn't somber. It was sort of just a time to to get together as a family. And I remember, so my grandparents are buried in Rose Hills or at Rose Hills, which is kind of in LA County, Whittier, a really, really beautiful cemetery. sits up on a giant hill. And like, I remember as a kid, like we would go and we would roll down the hill. I mean, so it wasn't like, a sad time. It was a time to just gather all of the family and really celebrate those who had, you know, passed before us. So I don't, I mean, and I think maybe that's why I don't have any weird you know, feelings about cemeteries. I mean, yeah, there are some that are kind of creepy or eerie, like if you look more like some of the historical ones, but then there's also historical ones that are absolutely stunning. Yeah. The interesting thing about it is that um, they were actually sort of some of our earliest parks and people used to actually have events there. And we'll dig into it a little bit more in the history section uh, later. But yeah, it's, it's a, I feel like it's, at least in the United States, it's a very different perception as far as the majority of people. But like you guys mentioned, some people don't have that sort of perception of, of a cemetery. We're going to dig into this project because right now there's two main options currently. There's either traditional burial or cremation. And now this project, Recompose, which is going to be built in Seattle. The first one's going to be built in Seattle. It's going to be the world's first facility for converting human remains into soil. So with that, you can plant a, a tree or garden or anything like that. So... It'll be interesting to hear from our guests a little bit more about that. Um, he is principal and owner of the world-renowned firm Olsen Kundig, where he leads the interdisciplinary team of architects, designers, visual artists, and researchers. His team designs buildings, parks, and gardens, installations, sculpture, digital art, graphic novels, and film. For over two decades, he has pursued unconventional design challenges in public places, His built international portfolio includes museums, installations, exhibits, visitor-based destinations, and urban park projects. Please help me welcome Alan Maskin. Alan, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Demetrius. Hello, everybody. Alan, uh, outside of your bio, anything else you want to share with the audience hobbies or anything about Olsen Kundig that uh, people may need to know? 
Well, I think that um, it's, it's kind of hard to um, even have any conversation without acknowledging the sort of environment that we're all living under the, and the sort of global challenge that everybody is facing. So my firm, which is located in Seattle, Washington, we had one large studio in Seattle and two days about three weeks ago, in two days, uh, we moved to what was almost 200 separate studios. So, um, and like much of the world, there was the, this ability and this, this need to actually sort of go into quarantine and to, into a kind of lockdown, but also to sort of stay connected and to sort of try to maintain um, things as best we could. So there is that aspect of practice. And I'm talking to you today from uh, I live across uh, Puget Sound from Seattle, and so I'm, I'm actually sitting in my bedroom in a tiny cabin that I live in um, out here. The, the conversation that we're going to have and, and what you had wanted to talk about in relationship to Recompose is a, a particularly challenging conversation to have in light of uh, what is going on in the world at this exact moment. And so um, I think for us not to acknowledge the amount of death that's happening globally and uh, and the suffering that is happening as a consequence uh, would be a, a tremendous oversight. So I, I just wanted to begin by saying that we are going to be talking about a rather revolutionary act of death care and, and one that has been a movement around the world. And in some ways, maybe this pandemic points out why it is perhaps more necessary than ever before. Yeah, that's a great sentiment to frame this whole conversation. Um, now, Alan, I'd like you to kind of set us up with what Recompose is. But before we do that, we want to give a little bit of understanding about how death care has evolved throughout history. And to do that, got to go back in time. About 120,000 years ago, the earliest known burials occurred in the Middle East. For much of human history prior to this point, humans didn't bury their dead. The deceased were removed and or honored in various other ways. They were left in caves, trees, and on mountaintops, sunken in lakes, floated out to sea, ritually cannibalized, or cremated. Surprisingly, the first occurrences of burials are thought to have been for transgressors as an exclusion from rituals that were intended to honor the dead. However, burial displayed advantages, protecting the body from scavengers and the elements and shielding loved ones from the site of decomposition. These advantages likely began to shift views on burial to a new way to honor the dead. We have finite lives here on Earth. Eventually we wind down, all living things do. And uh, when that happens, we have to do something with the deceased. That's Keith Egener, professor of architectural history at the University of Oregon, editor of the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians, a columnist for Places Journal, and author of the book titled Cemeteries. Keith helped shed some light on the purpose, historical significance, and evolution of cemeteries. Cemeteries are one of the primary ways in which we have dealt with the disposal of our dead over the course of several thousand years now. They serve to accommodate the mortal remains of the deceased, while also providing a place for uh, their survivors to commemorate them, to mourn, to memorialize, to gather, 
Actually, they serve as many purposes, I would say, probably more purposes for the living than they do for the dead. Communal burial first appeared in North Africa and West Asia around 10 to 15,000 years ago, coinciding with the first permanent settlements. Nomadic Scythians prepared mounds of earth and stone raised over a grave or graves known as kurgans. Etruscans built expansive necropoles, large design cemeteries on a grid pattern lined with elaborate tomb monuments. Rome had subterranean catacombs with cremation urns and intact remains. This shift towards burial also preserved the act of burying the dead with tools and other items which signified a belief in the afterlife. The concept of resurrection emerged in ancient religious writings, mostly in reference to deities, but it was the belief of a judgment day or resurrection of the dead found in many religions that would further solidify the importance of burial throughout society. While some believed in the resurrection of the spirit, others believed the physical body would be resurrected. In medieval Europe, open space was rare, but Christian churches utilized their open yards to accommodate the dead. These spaces simultaneously hosted markets, fairs, and even allowed farmers' cattle to graze in them, believing it made for sweeter milk. From about the 7th century, European burial was under the control of the church. Practices varied, but bodies were usually buried in mass graves until they had decomposed. The bones were then exhumed and stored along the perimeter of the cemetery or in the church under the floor slabs and behind walls. By the end of the 19th century, negative impacts on groundwater from the burial of corpses caught the attention of scientists. In 1879, the French Society for Hospital Hygiene noticed the relationship between typhoid fever and groundwater contaminated by leeches from a cemetery in Paris. Somewhat sweet-tasting water and an unpleasant smell was found coming from the wells located close to cemeteries in Paris. In the process of decomposition, a human body leaches a liquid that contains pathogenic bacteria, viruses, chemical substances applied in chemotherapy and embalming processes, makeup, as well as various additional items that may contaminate the groundwater. Subsequently, some cemeteries were moved away from heavily populated areas and were prohibited in inner-city locations. Even in the fairly new country of the United States, the impacts of burial were quickly realized as population increase, land prices increase, and Americans wanted to provide better amenities for citizens. There was something frankly unwholesome about having all of these bodies planted in the midst of the city. Sometimes during floods or other conditions, coffins would become uh, sort of slip their bounds. There are stories of you know floods in New York where coffins were floating down Wall Street and such uh, in the midst of a flood because uh, you know they they became somehow unmoored from where they'd been, and so there was a lot of concern about the the hygienic aspects. I mean, keep in mind that throughout the course of the 18th and 19th century in these large cities in Europe and the Americas. Well, the kind of conditions we're suffering right now with uh, COVID-19 were frankly pretty common. Uh, every few years, there would be a typhoid outbreak or a cholera outbreak or an influenza outbreak or 
you know, some other, you know, horrible disease for which there was really no, no remedy. And people didn't really know how diseases spread. The prevailing or the leading theory was something called the miasma theory, which suggested that these kind of toxic vapors would rise up from swamps and other such places and carry these kind of toxic clouds around and infect people. And burial grounds were seen as one place where that might well happen. So the idea of locating uh, burial grounds, very densely packed burial grounds, like, you know, again, there were hundreds of thousands of bodies buried on several levels, one atop the other, in a place like uh, Trinity Churchyard in New York. Uh, to have all of these thousands of bodies densely packed into, you know, densely built and occupied urban space was just no longer seen as uh, a good practice. And so by the 1830s, in conjunction with the Greek revival and the fashionability of uh, Père Lachaise and the economic considerations I was just mentioning, it came to be seen as desirable to move those graveyards out of town to what were called rural cemeteries. And so you then have the onset of what was called the rural cemetery movement, the cemetery reform movement led to spacious landscape cemeteries outside of city limits and embodied an idea of state or private controlled cemeteries rather than church led burials. They were often, you know, seen as important amenities to the city. Now keep in mind again, at this time period in the eighteen thirties, forties, and well into the eighteen fifties, a lot of things that we more or less take for granted now just simply didn't exist in most places in the United States. Public parks botanical gardens, art museums, a cemetery also with beautiful landscaping and horticulture, the sculpture of uh, fine uh, statuary and uh, uh, the architecture of lavish tombs, the grave sites of prominent men and women of local repute and all of the references to local history and so on. These became seen as real ornaments to the city. And they became very popular places to visit, to picnic, to take carriage rides, to bring your distinguished guests who were visiting from out of town. You know, this was, again, one of the nicest places to go in a lot of cities. And in fact, they then served as inspiration for later parks and suburban subdivisions and eventually landscaped college campuses and uh, corporate parks and other kinds of uh, uh, landscape designs that we find still to this day across the United States. Interestingly, the development of cemeteries have created an unexpected effect. As Keith explains, cemeteries sort of doubled as a time capsule of society. You find a whole language of funerary architecture, tomb sculpture and freestanding sculpture and other things that speak to the concerns and outlook of the era. So in this period, the 1830s and 40s, for instance, we have a shift from the earlier Puritan aesthetic of the 17th and early 18th century, where gravestones would often have memento mori imagery, uh, reminders of, of mortality, imagery which might include such things as an hourglass with the sands running out or a skeleton with wings, you know, flying off to the heavens. That language shifts very much by the 1830s, 1840s to a much more kind of poetic and 
a discrete sort of language that speaks far less directly about death as death and decay and now speaks about death as a kind of sleep. And so the, the grave itself starts to look more like a bed with the stone as a kind of headboard almost. And the imagery on those headboards have things like weeping willows, cheery little cherubs, uh, you know, smiling up at the heavens, hands reaching upward or hands reaching downward. Uh, so again, the language of gravestones and, and grave markers changes. But also keep in mind that, you know, as we look around the United States, one thing that I think often Europeans comment on when they come to the United States is just, you know, everything looks so new uh, because we, we have a tendency to, to not be very interested in preserving a, a whole lot of our past. Uh, what was it? The economist Joseph Schumpeter back in the 40s talked about you know, creative destruction. We are a, a people architecturally and urbanistically who practice creative destruction. We tear down a lot of our present in order to make way for a, a brave new future. That may pertain very much to the center of most large American cities that had vibrant economies. Where it doesn't pertain, though, is in cemeteries. Cemeteries, because of our rather unusual practice of burial in perpetuity, which is quite different from what people practice in most other parts of the world, where you buy a, a grave plot for a fixed period of time, and then after that period of time is up, your descendants either pay up again for another lease, or else you're carted off to a charnel house and somebody else is planted in the same hole. You know That's what happens in a lot of Europe and a lot of Latin America uh, and other places. Here we have this notion of burial in perpetuity. I shall be planted in this plot of ground with this stone, and it is mine forever. And you know, everyone will come and visit me, you know, for time memorial. So, with that idea, cemeteries, uh, well, they fill up for one thing, and they also become kind of fixed cityscapes. You know, think about the cemetery as well as it's often called—a necropolis. It's a city of the dead. It's a uh, uh, a mere image of the city of the living right next door, right? Uh, but this city of the dead, unlike the city of the living, which is constantly changing and growing, the city of the dead, yes, it changes and grows too, but much more slowly and very little is ever torn down. So as you walk around it, you know, you see these progressions of American architecture, the different fashions, the styles that were fashionable in the city of the living, contemporaneously. So just as the Greek revival prevailed in the 1820s and 30s, let's say, in New York or Philadelphia, and then the Egyptian revival came along, and then the Gothic revival came along by the 1850s, you know, and you have these stylistic trends in urban architecture, you see those same trends manifested in the architecture of graveyards. Our rapidly evolving society begs the question of cemeteries' relevance to society today. You know, one of the statistics I'm most fond of quoting is the fact that in 1950, there were two and a half billion people on Earth. Now, 70 years later, there are seven and a half billion people on Earth. There's just a whole lot more of us, and all of us are going to die. That's just going to happen. It's inevitable. There's no getting around it. Meanwhile, of course, we're all a lot more aware than we were even 
10 or 20 years ago about environmental degradation that we uh, perpetuate across the planet. You know, so these kinds of practices, cremation, green burial, and so on, I think will play an ever greater role in the future. I think we'll still see traditional burial being practiced probably in rural places, more conservative rural places, for instance, where there's more land and less developmental pressure. And I think it will continue to be practiced as a kind of a, a status symbol in urban areas as well for those who can afford it or those who choose to devote a significant portion of their resources. Today, the perception and use of cemeteries has changed greatly. The declining use by the living, capacity limitations, continued environmental and health concerns, rising populations and demand for real estate, and many religions shifting stances on the importance of the traditional burial has inspired a reimagining and rethinking of how we depart with our loved ones, such as collective memorials for cremated individuals, or even more explorative concepts like being launched into space, being converted into jewelry, fireworks, or ink for tattooing. As someone who has always been interested in cemeteries and who likes those spaces and really values what they represent, a recognition of our ancestors, of our past, of our continuity in time and space, I would hate to see them disappear altogether, but I certainly uh, recognize that they almost certainly will be radically reduced in size and number. But frankly, a lot of people speak very dismissively about cemeteries as wasted land. I think that's nonsense. I mean, that's like saying that a room with lofty ceilings that makes your spirit soar is wasted because it's not being practically filled with utilitarian purposes. I mean, a lot of you know valuable things that we do and make and build from a purely utilitarian standpoint are wasted. But you know, is that the kind of world we want to live in where everything is measured in you know, utilitarian and just bare economic terms? Cemeteries, traditional ones, have a great deal of cultural and historical and poetic and aesthetic value. So we talked a little bit about um, sort of primed the concept of Recompose, but wanted to kind of throw it to you to fill that out and talk a little bit about what Recompose is um, sure. and, and kind of what inspired it. Uh, sure. It was created uh, and envisioned by an architect, and her name is Katrina Spade. And she was going to architecture school in UMass, and she was working on her thesis project. And she began to become interested in the idea of uh, human composting as an experiment to sort of explore in terms of all of its aspects, not only the sort of technical aspects of what it takes for a human body to uh, become organic soil and, and a non-toxic reaction to the ways that we leave the, the world. But she um, also wanted to imagine the sort of cultural aspects that would go along with it. And so when she graduated, you know, there's an argument, I think, and maybe you guys would agree with this, that you keep thinking about the, your thesis project, your entire career, and uh, she very actively pursued hers. And so she made it her sort of life's work. And so I f first met Katrina about five or six years ago, a friend of mine who was actually a, a designer of, of memorials and uh, tombstones in Seattle, among many other things. He's an artist. He said, you really have to meet this woman. She has the most interesting idea. And so I invited her down to Folsom Kunduk studio and we had a cup of tea 
I don't think she drinks coffee, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and we, uh, we just talked about her idea. And I imagine much like probably uh, the three of you listening to this or, or the people out there, when you first hear the notion of when you die about um, moving into human composting or becoming organic soil, I think people go into a kind of shock. I think in the first place that they go in their own minds is, would I do this? Would this be good for me? And that's exactly where I went. We were having a cup of tea in our office. I was like, it seemed like such a, a radical idea. And at first, I began to wonder if, if, in fact, I would be capable of doing that. And then the more she talked about how non-toxic it was and how toxic the other alternatives that are currently in terms of particularly burial in the ground or cremation, which both take away from the planet every time a person dies in terms of the climate. So uh, I sort of went into that place of imagining myself, but the more she talked about it, the more I realized that it, not only would it be good for me, but I felt it would be good literally for the world, that this was something that is a way that, uh, that everyone could give back more positively um, in the process. And so she kind of won me over at that point. And we continued to talk for years. And I was on her advisory council. And uh, as she began to develop this idea, which was purely a conceptual idea, but she continued to move it along. And we have a creative residency program where people could apply to come to, to work at our office and they could make use of all of the, the tools and the architects and the designers and the engineers that work there and the interns to develop their project for one month. And she was our beta test. We had Katrina come in first and she brought with her a team of, of uh, designers and engineers and people doing research from different universities. And they designed the vessel and the vessel is a, the, really a key piece. And um, we'll send you, you renderings, Demetrius, if you haven't got them already, but it depicts uh, what it looks like. And what they figured out and what they designed was the prototype that became the vessel that's being sort of created right now. And what happens is a human body is, is sort of laying in the vessel and then along with some compost to help start it. It takes three months for the human body to actually um, decompose into organic soil. And they're actually looking to reduce that amount of time. And that's where they've been focusing for the last couple of months. And what are the ways that they could actually make that happen faster? Wow. And so she developed that while she was at our studio. And then it, it was literally just an idea we would discuss. She continued to advance it until she actually worked with legislatures to actually have it approved in the state of Washington. And so we were the first state in the country to literally legalize the potential licensing of human composting as a third alternative. The other two exist in Washington, as in most places. And then since that time, other states have actually joined, uh, joined along. And so shortly after the governor signed the legislation, Katrina called me and we met and she said, now's the time. She said, uh, we need, now need to move towards making this a real place. And so Seattle will have the first recomposed facility. And my firm and I'm working along with my colleague, Blair Payson, have been working with Katrina and her team to literally open this in about a year and a half. And so it will be the first facility in the world where people can go but it's unlike other types of death care. So perhaps we can talk about that later. Yeah, we'll definitely um, dig a little bit more into that design aspect of it. And I have the website with some photos that we can pull up and, and look at while we're discussing as well. So um, we'll pull those up in a second. But I wanted to ask, what has been public perception and reception been of the project as far as people in the area that have found out about the project um, or government officials. Do you have any insight into that 
Yeah, I can I can share a number of things. Uh, the renderings that you may have seen uh, from the website were created when she had leased a piece of property and uh, we had begun to do design work. And so those were originally images we were using with her just to talk about what the sequence of experiences would be like for people as they arrived at this place. And the renderings were then posted on two, uh, I think two design blogs. And what stunned us is how rapidly they literally spread across the globe. And uh, they have been picked up in countless numbers of periodicals. And what that indicates isn't necessarily that the majority of the world is, is ready to take this on. It does indicate that there was tremendous fascination with it and that there was, uh, and people were really curious. And if you read the comment sections on a, on a number of these, and I haven't seen them all, but in a couple of them, and, and to answer your point, it really runs the gamut. And so there are people who are, um, and I have people that have actually written to me and asked me if there's a waiting list, if they can get on that. I've, I've spoken to people who are terminally ill, who are incredibly intrigued and and, and wish this was something that was available now. Um, there are other people who it doesn't necessarily mesh with their spiritual beliefs or it doesn't necessarily mesh with what they think is the proper way for people to be buried. And so I think it's safe to say that having a third alternative doesn't mean that the others wouldn't still exist for those at the moment that preferred them. But for everyone that chooses this, they are choosing uh, just a different way to leave the world and a different message to give the planet. To me, the, the idea of the time span of three months doesn't actually sound that long to me um, in comparison to what I would normally expect. So is it because you guys have created a special process for doing so? And, and I'd imagine so because you're talking about even trying to reduce that time period. Yeah. So I should be uh, really clear with you guys and, and Jason and answer your question. We are designing the facility for Katrina, but we are not designing the, the vessel itself. And so yeah, that is something that she's working on with a team of people. And we are designing to fit it together to create the rooms where, where these things will live and so yeah. on. But, but we aren't, aren't necessarily doing that. I think that there's a lot of aspects of how we're culturally accustomed to uh, relating to death, which in some cultures is immediate. And I think the thing that's really interesting about the design project and about Katrina's idea is that she is interested in, if you were to have someone cremated, I do not know of a, of a crematorium anywhere in the world where the memorial events would actually happen or could happen at the same place where the body is cremated. And if you think about funeral homes and traditional funeral homes experiences, and I don't know about you guys, but I've had sort of patently terrible experiences within those kind of environments personally. Um, I, I'm intrigued with this idea that it could be a public place and that our attitudes about death, uh, which currently are mysterious, you, know, you can't see into funeral homes, uh, you can't see into these processes, there's a complete lack of transparency. But it's probably the most natural thing in the world, uh, one of them aside from being born. And twice as many people will be born every day that die. So it underscores the, the, the future need for having solutions, especially ones that will affect the climate. I, I, I just, that was very long-winded. Oh, that's okay. And I didn't answer your question, but I think the question is, I, because they don't know, if, if you were, suppose you wanted to take this organic soil and suppose it was a relative of yours and you uh, wanted to take some of this soil and, and grow a tree in your backyard and have the tree become the memorial to the person that you love. Correct. You know, are you, is it an adequate amount of time to wait uh, for three months, for example, for that to happen? So um, I think there's many reasons that they're, they're looking to condense that period. 
And it has a lot to do with, I think, just the ways that people are used to culturally dealing with death. Totally agree. I think this is, it's surprising that we're now only talking about this. And, and the reality is there are so many people that actually do cremate their loved ones. And what happens is they disperse those ashes in the ocean or in rivers or in trees, you know, at the base of a, of a tree in their backyard. So they're doing it anyways. But to do it the way that you're talking about and Katrina is talking about is really quite brilliant. It's surprising it's not happened before. And to your comment, Alan, about uh, not knowing of, of, of a place where you could memorialize as a cremation is happening. Again, I, I mentioned in our primer that I'm half Asian, and so I've experienced some of the culture around death um, on the Asian and in the in the Thai, specifically in the Thai and Buddhist culture. Hmm. And when my uncle was when my uncle uh, passed away, it was really bizarre. But part of his ceremony and part of his memorial was, was literally his casket going into an oven yeah. and all of his closest family and friends standing around in this very sterile, industrial-like, bizarre back room of a cemetery in Los Angeles and watching them turn the oven on and, and hearing those noises. It was really surreal. It was really like, are we even supposed to be here? So it wasn't... You know, that was part of what his uh, leaving was, but it was also like, this doesn't feel right. And it certainly, obviously, the space was not designed for people to be here, you know, saying their goodbyes. Hmm. So I I just, this is what you're, what you and Katrina are doing is just really fascinating. um, I agree. And again, I I want the spotlight to be on Katrina. It's really is her, her concept, her idea, and the hurts. She's kind of a force of nature, but Michelle, I want to acknowledge that I've heard as you can imagine, so many forms of, of burial and approaches to death care, and not a number of them, are, and particularly ones from, from Asian cultures or from uh, the similar backgrounds perhaps as yours, um, that have described uh, an actual ceremony where the bereaved are actually with uh, the deceased when the deceased body is actually put into the ovens. And, um, and I've heard some remarkable stories, some of them really fascinating and well done in some ways. It sounds like yours was uh, perhaps bordered on the questioning uh, whether that was the right way. But there is thought on this project from a design perspective, especially about as we design the spaces, about what the sequence will be like for people from the moment they arrive here, how they enter, they pass through a small uh, uh, bamboo garden, for example, because nature is a byproduct of what could become of your loved ones. They enter into spaces that a lot of thought has been given to how they gather, how they move closer to the body, the ability to see into the next space before you actually walk into it, the desire for some people to be alone with the deceased, that is the desire for some to have large crowds. There's also a desire, and you'll see from the renderings, to keep these spaces really respectful and acknowledge these as spiritual spaces without uh, and trying to make space for any spiritual practice or belief to be able to establish their own rituals within the context of the recomposed facility. Here are some images that um, that Demetrius is putting up that are, are showing. This is the main chamber uh, where a variety of different kinds of gatherings can happen. This is a description of the process that Demetrius is showing uh, that was a diagram that basically is that once you die, you're in this tray with, that your family can actually help prepare. You are moved into the vessel. In a couple of months, you will be turned into, into organic compost with very, very low toxic uh, sort of emissions, almost none. 
and then the ability for that soil to be used. And Katrina has been in conversation with different sustainable forests in the area who are thrilled at the prospect of having access to organic soil. So the idea that we could be feeding sustainable forests for others in the future or where food could be grown or construction materials or other things is actually an interesting way to leave the world. And frankly, it was one that was attractive to me. Yeah, for sure. So, I love the idea. So Alan, um, we started to talk about uh, that design uh, process a little bit and some of the, the concepts. Can you dig in a little bit more about your approach to this project and and that process of the concept? Were you looking at other concepts or ideas? Because I've actually been looking to similar concepts internationally that have been available. And there's a lot of things that, that are out there of mushroom suits and different yeah. things like that. Were you looking at any anything that's available now internationally or... Um, I'm I'm really glad that you uh, brought that up, Demetrius. I th um, I think Katrina um, would be the first to admit, and I and I would agree with her that we're in the middle of a kind of death care revolution where the need for alternative death care is is really profound, and so there are movements literally all over the world, as you indicate, of people working on and researching different ways and more sustainable ways that people can actually sort of. Uh, end their lives and, and leave the or leave the world, and so there are many that are going on, and we're certainly aware of them. And Katrina is very much a part of the death care sort of network, and uh, many people that are advising her and on her uh, her committees and her teams actually come from different sort of areas and approaches to death care and uh, how this this can progress. And so we're at a moment where a lot of alternatives are being experimented with around the world. And it's exciting, I think, in that regard. There are, because of the United States and because of licensing and restrictions, there's the, a legality aspect in terms of what is technically legal in any given state. And as we discussed earlier, uh, Washington state is now moving into the licensing realm as, as is California, Colorado, and others. So um, I think we can look for this to become, and you know, it's not a, it's not necessarily a political thing, in all honesty. It's literally just um, a, a third alternative. But what you're referring to is are many other types of, of alternatives that also exist. And, and the thing to weigh is, when you're looking at all of these, is what's the one that might be right for you or someone you know, or but also what is the impact that they have in relationship to the planet? Mm -hmm. Now, most of those other ideas, concepts that are out there internationally, they're, they're simply... Um, I guess in comparison, Katrina's concept is uh, a vessel that converts to soil. And there's a lot of other ways that people are thinking of doing it. But this is the first facility that will house this uh, process, correct? To my knowledge, that's true. Um, certainly it, in the United States, I do not know of another facility um, that has been designed to provide an alternative facility besides the ones for cremation or traditional burial methods. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of cultures that have a lot of different approaches. And so the, um, and the ones I'm describing are largely Western. And so we need mm -hmm. to acknowledge that there's many, many practices that happen. Think about the instances in India or, or in certain other parts, continents and parts of the world where other practices that are conformed to other religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs um, also take place in relationship to how people are buried. Yeah. Right. Did, did you look to any other cultures for design influence on the recompose? 
one of the things that we knew we wanted to do was to integrate nature. And so that became a sort of strong sort of guiding point for us. So that at the very beginning when you're arriving, and again, it's, um, this is an ADA ramp, but virtually everyone enters the same way. So there's full accessibility for the elderly and so on that can come into the spaces. We also looked at spiritual spaces where daylight played an, a, a powerful role. I think there's something about the presence of daylight in space that uh, can in fact be provide a spiritual um, aspect. Uh, this is the chamber room and it can be um, organized in a variety of ways where the vessels are stored. And you can see that there is uh, uh, there are these trees, those literally can be moved around the room and arranged in different configurations so that whatever type of memorial could happen here. Katrina wants death care to be so transparent. She's even imagining having events here and literally having this be the kind of thing where it is not this sort of behind curtain experience, but is actually a, a more transparent part of our lives and an acknowledgement that this happens to virtually every one of us. Yeah. Michelle, you had a question. Yeah, I've got so many questions about just the space itself. So in terms of just building square footage and where do you locate a building like this and what is really the design and what's the capacity and how many ceremonies or, or memorials can take place at one time? And is there more of a back room space where the decomposing is actually just happening. I mean, I've got a lot of questions around that. Maybe you can touch on some of those. Sure. Once you arrive and you come up this ramp, there's a number of different gathering spaces. And then these are uh, spaces that are for private families where they can encounter the body for the first time. And there's a space before this where, where families can gather. Individuals want to come in and spend time uh, with their with the deceased as well. There's places here for projection. People can put up um, uh, photographs, um, uh, flowers. They can bring any spiritual sort of accoutrement that they want to engage in the room. And then the back wall opens, literally the wall opens, and then you uh, move into the into what is then the laying in space, which is a large chamber. And uh, it's located outside of Seattle, and it is in a hundred-year-old industrial building. And it has this beautiful, large bow truss, and it's made out of wood, and it's Douglas fir from the Pacific Northwest, so there's a tremendous amount of warmth. It spans 100 feet without columns, which was uh, really sort of exciting to the team and to Katrina because it meant that we could have space, unobstructed spaces here. You can see on the left and right that there are about 75 vessels that are stored here and uh, there and there's the ability for more. The vessels are organized like a honeycomb. It's a shape taken from nature, from a beehive essentially, and it's how they fit together and they work. And then there's a variety of different types of ways that people can gather. There can be large gatherings if, there's a, if it's a large memorial. There are also ways to configure the space if there are smaller and more intimate ones. And so the ways the spaces are used are become much more intimate. And, and forgive me. So as I'm looking at the image right now, those circular. OK, yeah, so that one shows that it basically pops open and that's where the vessel slides into. It, it does. Yes. OK. Now, so there's cool. there is a back of house behind that where um, additional soil and another door is in the back where additional soil can be added, composting soil, which actually aids in the uh, composting process. Very cool. And what is the capacity of vessels that you've designed for and how many total building square feet? And now these renderings suggest that this project is really far along and that like it's going to open in two weeks. We have a year and a half to go and there's going to be definitely some reconfiguration in the numbers and the amounts. And so, um, but I think um, it's in the range of 100 
and uh, but uh, is designed to go more and larger over time, so it's phased. It may start with a smaller amount initially, and then actually over time increase. But there is a significant number of them that we'll be including. Actually, what? Okay. Sorry, Michelle, just an answer to a question earlier. You know, how is this project unlike other projects? Well, in absolutely every respect, it is. And so. If you think about building permits, for ex example, there is no comparable project that a building department can look at this and say, oh, this is just like X, or it's not quite a funeral home, it's not quite a crematorium, it has its own, so, so that, that, I mean, there's been tremendous receptivity, I would say, from the city in terms of the project, but anything that is un that has never been done before is going to sort of raise some eyebrows, and so th that process is ongoing. So we are in pursuit of a building permit at the moment. Can you talk a little bit about that experience of dealing with the city and how difficult it may have been or how do you convince a plan checker to <laughs> to accept certain things when there's nothing to compare it to? We um Well, and I'm also curious about the zoning as well and just what land use designation uh something like this can be can be done in. Um, I think these are all really, really uh, great questions. And I think that you're, the fact that you're questioning them was that we also, as a team, were questioning like exactly um, <laughs> how can this be received? And so we, we have not submitted for permit, but we're about to start on this sort of permit application. And so, you know, ask me in, in four to six weeks or, or two months, um, I'll have, probably have different answers for you. But um, as of today, we've done what we did is we had preliminary meetings and uh, and just went into the city and talked about the project. And then they needed to sort of go back and, and think about exactly how this would be categorized. And so I would say in answer to your question, Michelle, nothing has landed as of yet, but it challenges, you know, almost all um, existing uh, sort of jurisdictions in some respect, simply because it's the very first one. That's so fascinating to me to to be the first of something and having to you're you're blazing the trail so so I assume as a team you guys sort of wrapped your minds around what you what your opinion of what it would be categorized and then you make a presentation to the city uh in some regard and now they're like you mentioned they're kind of going back to think about what their opinion of it is and yeah. there's going to be a little bit of back and forth probably you know, it's interesting, and we, I, I would say that um, my colleague Blair and I um, at Olson Kundig have had a, a lot of experience with one-of-a-kind projects that are really hard for cities to categorize. <laughs> um, I'll give you one other example. Uh, we recently designed uh, a $100 million remodel of Seattle Space Needle, which is, um, you guys might be familiar with it, it's this sort of iconic building uh, that it symbolizes Seattle in many respects. And we had we were doing some uh, pretty radical transformations of that. And when we submit, we were talking with the city before we submitted for permit. They were um, they were scratching their heads, like, "What kind of what building typology is this? Is it a high rise? It's only four stories. It just happens to be five hundred feet tall." And so uh, we're somewhat accustomed to um, unusual projects and being able to work with the city to um, come up with an understanding and uh, of how they could be interpreted. Demetrius, to your point, we, you know, in our own minds and our own experience have thought of certain things would be perceived in certain ways and uh, and then went in and began to ask the questions. And I have to say the city of Seattle in both instances, and this has happened on other projects as well, has been really, um, really open to um, trying to understand the differences here 
and they've been uh, really accommodating, but they certainly ha can only work within the sort of confines of how they interpret their own codes. Yeah. Alan, are you working with the city of Seattle? Is, is that the jurisdiction that it'll ultimately be developed and built in? It is, and that's, okay. that's where we, we, we will be submitting the permit to them. I was curious about the funding and financing and sponsor of a project like this. I mean, it, it sounds like Katrina is really the brainchild behind the whole thing, um, but is there a group of investors or how, yeah, who, who's actually going to see this to fruition? You're correct in that uh, Katrina is overseeing um, the funding of the project. I think she has her own approach. I don't know a lot of, in all honesty, about the details of how that's going. I just know that um, she's been uh, successful up until now, uh, partially because I think people uh, sort of identify with this as a change they'd like to see in the world and, um, and in some cases have been supportive of that. I, I, I know it's not an enormous amount of investors. I think she's uh, thus far has been um, working with a smaller group. Uh, and it's usually people who I think she resonates with on a personal level and who she feels understand what's, what it is she's trying to create um, and, uh, and have been working together. So, um, so but it is, um, she is looking for, uh, has been looking for donation, donations and investors and has been um, to some extent quite successful. Alan, what's been the most complex part about taking this project on? Without question, you know, so um, I'm, I'm going to back up on that question for a little bit to describe that um, every Thursday, and this includes us in quarantine, we're still <laughs> doing this, but, you know, it's a firm of 200 people. And every Thursday before the virus and the pandemic, uh, we would meet at 4.30 and we'd have beer and food and we would put a design project up on the wall and we would, um, and and the team working on it explains it. And then the whole office from interns that just walked in the door from, you know, overseas, perhaps to uh, people that have worked in the firm for many, many decades, like myself. And everybody gets to chime in design wise on their suggestions, their ideas. And it's you guys know from your own experience, it's, it, you know, design critique can be is is critique. And it's uh, and it's intended to be strong to make the, the projects better. And so uh, our team posted this project and we described it. And I was unsure. It's the first time that probably over 100 people in my office were seeing it and they'd heard about it probably. But and they were um, first chance that they could chime in on the design. And and there was one point where I just asked and frankly, I'm going to ask the three of you this and it's personal information and you don't have to share it if you don't want to. But I asked people there and again, I said, don't raise your hand if you don't want to. But how many of you would consider this for yourselves? And there's a long pause. <laughs> I see one. Um, Jason's in. I would join you on that one. But almost every hand in the room went up. And that was kind of moving to me. And then the second piece that I think is unknown is how many would go to um, actually attend a memorial service in the same place where the body was being composed. Now, I don't, as you guys know, I don't take architects as um, a great sort of necessarily a, a beta test for how the rest of the world thinks or behaves. I think that we are, it's a separate entity in some ways in the way we look at some things, not everything, but some things. And so, um, but almost every hand went up there. And then I asked, well, how many of you would come and get soil to take home? Or would you be comfortable with it going to a um, sustainable forestry? And again, almost everybody wanted some soil, much like people want ashes uh, to distribute. Now, again, this is not data it's not hard science it's just this this reaction of, of, of you know 
150 people perhaps who were in the room at the time and who were interested in the project. So the challenges have been, um, and they're, you know, what great things, frankly, to be able to think about and what an honor to think about something like this is how to make that a space where every single person feels welcome, that this will be sensitive to their needs and what, uh, and the ways that they want to see the people they love or have known um, sort of moving on. And so, and that's taken so much conversation and design and trial and error. We experimented, for example, with color and the use of color in the space, for example. And we found to, to one of your earlier questions, we began to look at uh, spiritual spaces of many, many different practices. And there was something about the presence of daylight and the color white that was reemerged through so many colors and so many um, environments. So juxtaposing that with, with actual nature for us became a sort of cultural design palette that we were learning from other, other spaces and other experiences. I think it's awesome. The whole thing I think is amazing. I mean, the space itself, I come from a very Catholic background. So, you know, using to attend those types of services and everything and just visualizing the space that you guys are talking about, yeah. um, seeing the, seeing the, the daylight, the nature, you know, because I, I guess going back to the opening piece of it, it's all a very natural thing. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. You know, I think we can, I think we can uh, thank Hollywood for that. Right. But um, ultimately I, you know, from the, from what I, what I would call, it's not a viewing room, but um, you know, the room where he had, it was, a, it's much more personal space, family oriented, you know, that, that type of, uh, I can't remember, you know, like a viewing is what it would be. Right. Um, very similar, but, but just a beautiful space and to open up and everything else for people to pay their last respects do that and just know that, and it gets into the religious stuff too, right? Depending on your background with that and, and, and how some people are, but we know it's not necessarily the body that matters. It's the soul at some point, depending on your background. And, um, you know, I've always laughed when even my wife and I had talked about it before the idea of, you know, I don't need to be buried. Nobody needs to come visit me, but how cool would it be to, to provide shade for somebody else at some point, or, you know, people that love construction, right. And have such a heart for that type of thing to, potentially go into building that of another person's, you know, home and, and docile and all those types of things. I think it's amazing. And the space itself is just, especially with that, that bridgeway that you're talking about, the trusses and how open that is and how beautiful that is. I, man, I'd, I'd buy my ticket soon. You know what I mean? Once it's, once it's available, I think you guys did a fantastic job. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I want to acknowledge that not everybody in the world is going to agree with you, but, um, or but with they're, wrong. they're wrong. We know this. We, we already tell people all the time. If they're not on that side, they're wrong. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, what is the alternative? I, I can't, I've been wrestling uh, as we've been, as we've been talking on this, on this podcast about what the pros and, or what the cons rather are to going through this process. And I haven't yet been able to come up with one for myself. And, and I absolutely recognize that, you know, every culture has a different spiritual belief and, and a different belief about how the body and the soul exit the earth. Um, but for me personally, I haven't been able to find a con. I don't know why you wouldn't do this because the alternative is you're put in your best attire and put in a beautiful wooden casket and lowered into the earth's surface. Um, or you're cremated and your ashes are, you know, either taken somewhere or put in an urn or, or put in a wall at a cemetery. And so why, why, if I guess the, what I've, what I've been trying to ask myself as we've been talking is why wouldn't you want to decompose and be used for something purposeful and useful, um, 
I, I guess, to help the sustainability of, of the of the world. And I haven't I haven't been able to come up with an answer. I did have one question though, because I thought you know when you do cremate, ashes are very very heavy. I don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity to to lift a body yeah. that's been cremated. Yeah. Um, I was curious: is that also the case with the soil? Is the soil is that heavy as well? Do we do we know uh, anything about that? I realize I've been using the word decompose, and I and uh, Katrina would would correct me because she really is using recompose as as the, 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 the this is a process which I think is unlike others, and so I'm correcting myself in that regard. Um, um, and hearing you guys play it back to me, it it, uh, it is a new version. But I think the answer to the question, um, I mean, I think that um, you know. People listening to this won't see, but the three, you know, the three of us were nodding our heads, like because uh, I, I think each of us has has held ashes in our hands and the weight of that. Um, I think anyone that has held soil or it had earth or has worked in the garden knows uh, what the weight of that is, and uh, and so and that Michelle is essentially what it would be like, and a a, a human body will. <clears throat> through this recomposed process, we'll, we'll create about a cubic yard of soil, which is a lot of soil. And uh, it's not clear that every family will want all of it necessarily, much like not every family takes all of the, all of the ashes. And so, um, but again, uh, there, are, there is uh, real interest from sustainable forests uh, in our region um, in having access to this if people don't want it themselves. And so it becomes this other kind of memorial where um, your loved one is part of a forest. Um, and a part of the interconnected um, natural environment. I am clearly all in on this. Uh, that's why I asked you to come on, <laughs> Ellen. Uh, so you had me already before you even jo joined us today. So, um, but I, I, think, I, I, I think Demetrius, it's safe to say that that the four of us, given our backgrounds, are probably predisposed to this because of the <laughs> kinds of issues that face our lives and our careers, especially in relationship to climate change and the environment. Um, so um, it's it's interesting for me to hear, and uh, and obviously the three of you, this is not the first time you've heard of it, um, so you've had some time to think about it and so on. But it's interesting when you ask someone for the very first time, or you describe it to them for the very first time, they have to have a moment. You can see, uh, like menus are scrolling down in their brain um, as they're trying to sort of reconcile, like, is this right, and is it right for me? Yeah. What's interesting about that, I know I'm going a little bit on a limb, is I'd tell you most likely it's not because of their initial thought for themselves. It's the social the social judgment on that. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, where does that fit in comparison? Because, you know, I think when you get a lot of knee-jerk responses from people and they're willing to respond quickly, that's really what they think. When they take their time, it's that whole judgment of, am I saying the right thing or not? Oh, interesting. I, th I, I mean, that's a, that's a guess from my side. Yeah, um, but I don't. Sure I, you could be you could be right that there's a kind of self consciousness, perhaps. Yeah, because I mean, it's anything that's it, new, and so exactly, exactly. So, man, I, I hope I hope you guys hit it hard and hit it running, you know, um, and get get through it quick. I mean, it just be. I think it's awesome. <laughs> it's it's just very cool. Ellen, was was there any uh, issue or? hiccup that you that you guys had to try to resolve through design as you were approaching this project something that you had to work on for either the primary user or secondary user well i think um i like the way you're phrasing the the latter part of your question demetrius because there's a, there are two user groups here if you think about it it's probably many if you study it 
but there are the people who will be coming to sort of deliver their, their the deceased and to memorialize them and pay tribute to them. But there also is the deceased themselves, and they are in and of themselves their own sort of user group here. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of thought about how that arrival happens and care that it takes, um, how that body is transitioned, and how the body is prepared for others to experience it and to say goodbye are have been given a tremendous amount of thought. And the renderings that you were showing earlier, I mean, people can find them online. We never overtly said this in the creation of these seven images. And the images were created by uh, Ryan Botts in our studio, who's a very talented architect. And so we did those images in-house just to visualize what it could be like. But it's actually the path that a, a deceased body would experience coming to the place, although you never actually never overtly says that. So, you know, seeing ramps as the arrival and then the first viewing space and then moving into the chamber and then moving into the vessels themselves, that is the path that the deceased would have. And so there is an underlying thread that holds all those images together in that respect. Yeah. Is there something in society that's changing in your mind that will either accelerate acceptance or be an obstacle for a recomposed team? Um, you know, I, I'll be honest. I think we have um, we have a lot to make happen in a year and a half. And and again, it's not the first time that I feel like we've been in the situation where we're working on a design project that doesn't have the clearest path because of its sort of uniqueness. And so there will be bumps in the road for sure. But we're feeling super optimistic that this simply has to happen. And so and I think the world is ready for it. I think that climate change has. And the, and the sort of consciousness around climate change has uh, has also made this an incredible, this and the other death care alternatives extremely attractive to many people in the world. It's like, I don't think people want the carbon associated with cremation to be going into the air we breathe. I don't think people want land to be locked down for eternity so that it can never be used for other types of things. And so I think it that aspect of it feels timely in relationship to just what's going on in in relationship to the planet. There is one other aspect of um, sustainability and uh, the end of life, however, that's not necessarily related to um, to the recompose process or Katrina's project. But one of the the sort of uh, largest sort of carbon impacts in death is actually traveling to a funeral. And the numbers of people who are getting on planes and moving planes and cars and traveling great distances or around the world to be able to sort of commemorate an individual has an enormous impact. And what I'm fascinated by, because I've been wondering in my own mind, um, is are there other ways for people to gather? And frankly, in the last three and four weeks, we've learned that there are. I, I had an office meeting with 100 and 77 people um, on Monday with the others and my colleagues in the office. And this experience that we're all having at the moment may force us to really think of the ways that we convene in the future and just imagine how much less of a sort of carbon footprint issue it would be if we were actually able to sort of attend these things and experiencing them and feel them without necessarily having to fly around the world to do so. Yeah. So assuming this takes off, I think it will, and you guys may or may not get all of the projects, uh, future recompose sites. But if, uh, if another company or if, uh, if another designer took on a similar facility, what's one thing that, that you would recommend them to consider 
at any level, a designer, someone who's building it that you may have encountered or foresee being a, a big consideration approaching this type of facility? Yeah, I'll be honest, we're not looking at it from a, a sort of a business uh, perspective. We may only do one. And that, from, from my standpoint, that um, in and of itself would be an honor to work on. Uh, we have been really lucky as a firm to get to work with some incredibly entrepreneurial thinkers and some, some and so people walk in the door with with big ideas and they need design to help them realize that. And so it's, it's like just a huge challenge and such a great thing to be able to work on. I know that that would probably continue. Katrina Spade had that in spade. Sorry, it's a, <laughs> I almost said she has it in spades, which is very bad <laughs> fun. Uh, she just is one of those people that had an enormous idea and had the force of energy to actually deliver it and make it happen. And so um, I'd always be open to talking with her about any other things that she would want to do in the future. But I also see that she could work with others. And what's most important is that this happens in a way that, that improves the environment, that engages people in a positive alternative. And for those that, that align with it or that feel like it's the right choice for them. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us, Alan. Uh, this has been great. Love the project. And uh, I think this is amazing conversation. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a fan of your podcast, um, especially in the last couple of months. And so um, keep up the great work. And I, I'll look forward to listening to you guys in the future. Thank you, Alan. Thanks so much, Alan. Yeah. Bye-bye. That's awesome. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. I mean, I've been involved in housing most of my career. You start with a sort of general concept and you get more and more specific as you go along. And it's a sort of slow process. With modular, it's like, oh, no, you're right up front figuring all this stuff out in intense detail. And it's kind of it is fun to do that. What you need, though, is, you know, the whole team has to be interested in doing that. That's what I feel like is sort of the most fun part is we're kind of engineers, architects, the manufacturer, we're kind of in each other's business, right? We say, here's what we want to do. They say, no, you can't do that. We say, why not? Why don't we try this? And they say, here's why. And it's this real collaborative process of design, which is, it's super fun, real engaging. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with BuildSmart, 
the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.